And of course, we are back in John this morning. John chapter 19. John 19, beginning in verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But, standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, Lord Jesus, bread of life, feed us. We've been feasting on all kinds of things that are empty and transitory that do not fill us spiritually and certainly not eternally. We've often found our eyes, our ears, our minds full not only of sinful things, but of empty things. But we confess too, sometimes sinful things. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would come. You are present in this room. You've inspired these words. And you can help us understand them. So help each individual here. Help each person to receive the life that you have brought to us through this Word. Overcome the weakness both of the speaker and the hearer. Give us, uh, give us a, a mind that is attentive and also ready to understand from the smallest to the oldest. Teach us for our good and your glory, we pray in your name. Amen. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, everything in this scene takes place at the foot of the cross. And so just get that picture firmly in your mind. Here is Christ crucified and dying for our sin on a cross between two criminals. But as the camera draws back, so to speak, we notice that there are others standing on that hill near that cross as well. And John, the the writer of this Gospel, wants us to see that. Because here's what he's going to do. He's going to contrast or draw a contrast between the callous cruelty of the unbelieving soldiers who gamble for his clothing beneath the cross and the caring compassion of Christ Himself and the believers who are drawn to Him upon that cross. And let's note these things, especially this contrast. First of all, just notice uh, the callous cruelty of the unbelieving soldiers. Verse 23 again, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also the tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
Now, for these soldiers, this was just another day on the job. They were part of a four-man execution squad. They've done this kind of thing before. And they knew that one of the bonuses that came with this job was they get to divvy up the possessions of the condemned man. Uh, That was their right as Roman soldiers, odd as that sounds to us. And so... As part of the execution, in order to shame him thoroughly, the victim would be stripped naked. And then while he died, the soldiers would divide up his few possessions among them. Um, And nothing personal, it's just business. And so we see them sitting at the foot of the cross, blood spattered from the crucifixion, dividing up his clothes. Their minds are not on him. They could care less about Him. They don't hate Him. They just don't consider Him. All they can think about is which part of this pile gets to be mine. Right? Like many people out there today, they don't hate Jesus. At least they don't register it as an emotion. They don't see that. We know that man in his sin does hate God, but it's not like on their radar. They're just swept up in the what of this belongs to my to me right so it is a cruel indifference but it is an indifference now typical of a first century jewish person jesus would have owned five articles of clothing sandals belt head covering inner and outer garments five articles of clothing for four men i don't know how you are with math but that doesn't quite work out and the prized piece of clothing that each one of them would have wanted would be the seamless inner garment, the the tunic as it's called here, the the, the piece that's worn next to the skin. It was really like a really long nightshirt. And so four men, one tunic, what are you going to do? Cut it into four pieces. Sure, we could do that, but because it's woven in a single piece from top to bottom, to divide it would be to destroy it. And so they decide to gamble for it. Right? They'll cast lots. Right? They'll, they'll throw the dice and you know, winner takes the tunic. But for them, it really is just a practical consideration. How else do you decide who gets it? They see no significance in this action whatsoever. Again, they've probably done this many times. But John, the beloved disciple, the writer of this gospel who was standing nearby, as we see in verse 26... John saw this happen. John probably overheard their conversation. And at some point, maybe months later, he would realize this is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Notice how he says it at the end of verse 24. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them and bore my clothing. They cast lots. Anybody remember where that passage is found? Psalm 22, verse 18. If you want to go ahead and turn there, flip over to Psalm 22 with me just for a bit here. Psalm 22 was written by King David. No surprise there. It's a psalm of lament, a song of someone who's crying out in desperation and pain. Originally, David wrote it about himself at a time that he particularly felt abandoned by God. And by the way, have you ever felt abandoned by God? That is something that every believer goes through from time to time. Don't be surprised by that. It doesn't mean that he has abandoned you, but you have felt that abandonment. But in the months and years 
following the death of Christ, Christians very quickly realize that this psalm, though it may have described how David felt at the time using figurative language, more closely and literally fit what Jesus was actually experiencing on the cross. David was a prophet. And in his own experience of agony, he has been given a foretaste, a foreview into the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. That's why this psalm is referred to uh, 18 times in the New Testament as specifically prefiguring the agony of Jesus upon the cross. In fact, look at the first line if you've turned there with me. Uh, Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now surely that sounds familiar if you read your Bible with any kind of regularity. Matthew 15.34, for instance, says at the ninth hour, as Jesus was being crucified, He cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is literally quoting this psalm from the cross. In fact, it goes even a little deeper than that. Uh, uh, In the synagogues of the day where the psalms were indeed the hymnal, They didn't have numbers yet. You couldn't say, turn to Psalm 23. You said, turn to, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, You would quote the first line as if that was the title of the psalm. And so, Jesus is not just crying out in agony here, though He certainly is doing that. He is referring to this psalm. He is drawing our attention and the attention of all those who are around there to this psalm so that we might see Him there. And so let's see Him. I won't read the whole thing. You can do that this afternoon perhaps, but just enough to let us see. Verse 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the groaning of my, from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And of course, that's exactly what Christ is going through during this moment as He becomes the substitute bearing our sins under the curse of God. Verse 6, But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. One of the Gospels mentions that specifically. And they say, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. In Him. Uh, Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. They shout those very words at Jesus. Verse 14, And I am poured out like water. My bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Very soon Jesus will say, I thirst. And He'll need a drink of the sour wine they give Him even to be able to speak because that thirst was a big part of crucifixion. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I mean, what a picture of crucifixion written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even a thing. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And now our passage, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. 
I mean, there's so much we could look at here as, as, as David describes a crucifixion scene who's never even seen a crucifixion scene, but, but, but inspired to do this, to present this picture of the suffering Christ. But, but here's what I want you to see because I really do think it's John's main point. This brutal crucifixion, including these callous actions by these soldiers, are not random events. We look up at the cross and we see this dying man abandoned by God and it looks really hopeless. You know, callous death has won. Goodness has been crucified. The world is this dark, cruel place. And if that's all we could see, if that's all that was happening, oh, it might be a beautiful story of a martyr that would be inspirational to us, but it would leave us with absolutely no hope. And so John and the other Gospels insert this reminder right in the middle of the text so that we will see it. This is not a random event. This is not cruelty triumphing. This is God working His plan to bring life and salvation for His people. Psalm 22 continues, and by the time we get to verse 27, we begin to see that that triumph of the crucified. Verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations. Insert us there. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules all the nations. So so turn the page from the suffering and this is what we see happening. God is triumphing through the cross. And so John... 1924 ends with that simple statement, so the soldiers did these things. (laughs) They did these things because God planned these things. Even the suffering, even in this suffering, God is in control. Listen, the cruelty and callousness of this world would overwhelm us if that's all we could see. It takes God's Word to open our eyes and let us see that it is through these cruelties that God in His sovereignty works all things for good for those who love Him who are the called according to His purposes. Everything that takes place on the cross, and dear Christian, everything that takes place in your life will unfold Ultimately, according to God's predetermined, gracious plan. Oh, take comfort in that. Lean hard on that when your times of trial and sense of abandonment come. God has a plan and He is working that plan and He has written it down that we might see Him working out that plan and what He has planned cannot and will not fail. And so are the soldiers do exactly what they want to do. I mean, they are free agents. They choose this cruelty. And yet what they choose is exactly what God in His sovereignty has determined they will do on the way to Him accomplishing His good purpose and salvation. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Listen, dear one, that is a bedrock foundation of our faith. Kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. And so we see the callous cruelty of these unbelieving soldiers unwittingly 
fulfilling prophecy, pointing us to Christ. But then contrast that with the second group Jesus, uh, John draws our attention to, standing on the hillside, these women weeping at the foot of the cross. Verse 25. But, see how he's making a contrast? Here's these four soldiers. What are they doing? They're gambling for his clothes. But, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Four women, not, not three by the way, um, as we'll see in a little bit, but, but four women set in stark contrast to the four soldiers. And the way John has written this, in fact, highlights that contrast in the original. Uh, the soldiers did these things, but the women were standing there. Because he wants us to see how these four grieving women are completely different from the four gambling soldiers. Because unlike these soldiers, they are anything but indifferent to the one on the cross. Their hearts are broken. Their eyes filled with tears, watching his life ebb away, struggling to understand how this is happening. I mean, we know the end. We, we know this ends in a resurrected, empty tomb. They don't. Despite his many promises, all they can see is that he is dying and they are grieving, but they're here. And that matters. Drawn to him out of love. Mark, in his gospel, mentions these same three women. Mine is Christ's mother. He doesn't mention her. Uh, when he says in Mark 15, verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem. So let's not forget that in addition to the male disciples who followed Jesus and became the leaders and pastors of the early church, there were also these women uh, who believed and followed Him as well. They didn't become uh, pastors, but they did play a very significant role in the life and ministry of Jesus. They ministered to Jesus and His disciples. They had a share in the work and in the good things that come from walking with Jesus. And now they are sharing in His grief as well. But again, here's the thing we need to see. They are there. Uh, the first time that Mark mentions them, he mentions that they're standing at a distance. Maybe they weren't sure whether or not they could safely approach the cross. They wouldn't know what the soldiers would do, but as the day drags on, they begin to draw closer. If this had been a group of men trying to get close to the crucifixion scene, probably the soldiers would indeed have confronted them and not let them pass. But a grieving mother and a few close friends is a different thing, and there are many accounts in history of them allowing a grieving mother and maybe three or four others to approach with her. So nobody bothers them. Four grieving women standing near the cross watching Christ die. Let's, let's take a look at each. First, there is Mary, his mother. <laughs> I doubt very seriously there are even words I could use to describe her grief. Right? This is her son. Yeah, he's the Savior. He is the King. Uh, he is God's Messiah. She knows that. 
That didn't change the fact that this is also her little boy. She nursed him and swaddled him and taught him to walk and watched him grow to manhood. Now he's on the cross. A day, by the way, she knew was coming, but how do you prepare for that? Some 30 years earlier, on the day Jesus as an infant was circumcised at the temple, uh, uh, the prophet Simeon had warned her. Luke 2.34, Simeon blessed them, the family, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Well, that day has come. And so she stands there watching and grieving for her son. Waiting in hope that God will keep His promise even though she can't at this moment see how it's all going to fit. By the way, faith is often put in that situation, isn't it? You've got the promise. You know the promise. You believe the promise. But you can't possibly see how it's going to work out. And all you can do is hold on and trust Him. Second, there is also Mary's sister, surely there to comfort her sister. And so this is Jesus' aunt on His mother's side. And there is some evidence that this would be the same woman Mark mentions likewise, Mark 15, verse 40, uh, who is named Salome. If so, she could very well be the same Salome who is the wife of Zebedee, the mother to James and John the apostles, uh, according to Matthew 27, 56. That would be interesting. Don't know what else it would be, but it would be interesting. Third, there was another woman also named Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, some think that you know this means Mary's sister and um, Mary, the wife of Clopas, are the same person, so only three women there. But I, I can't make that make sense in my mind that you would then have two sisters in the same family named Mary. Um, no, this is Mary, uh, another Mary. Again, probably the same one that Mark identifies as the mother of James the Younger, another apostle, and Joseph. In fact, very early Christian tradition tells us that Clopas was believed to actually have been Joseph's brother. Joseph by now being dead from everything we can tell, which would make this another aunt of Jesus, this time on his father's physically, you know, legally father's side, so still within the family. That's a little speculation, but it's interesting to think about. But then there's Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary of Magdala. This is actually the first time John mentions her. right? But she shows up several places in the other Gospels as one of these women who followed Jesus and helped support His ministry. Probably the most significant thing about her, though, is that Jesus has saved her out of a deep spiritual bondage. Luke 8.2 says that Christ rescued her from seven demonic spirits that had taken possession of her life. And you can just imagine the, the suffering and confusion and brokenness that would bring. And so here is a woman who's known deep personal suffering and yet now great freedom. Right? And in that great freedom, there comes great love. She too has been following Jesus and will continue to follow Him all the way to the end. In fact, we're going to see in a few weeks... She's going to be one of the first, if not the very first, to see Jesus alive from the dead on Easter morning. And so she's there too, despite the risks, sharing the shame with the others out of love and devotion 
for Jesus. Here's a picture of a true Christian, right? No matter what shame we get because we belong to Him, no matter what risks it entails because we claim to belong to Him, being near Him, walking with Him, loving Him, it's worth it. So four women whose lives have been dedicated to knowing, following, and serving Jesus. And John just wants us to see them. And sisters, he wants you to see that you also have a valuable share in Christ and His kingdom. You too have a role to play. Your service is significant and valued. And so while the New Testament is clear that it is men who are called to serve as pastors, we understand and believe that because it is clear, it is just as clear that you, our sisters, have significant roles to play in the service of Jesus and that the faith that binds me to Him binds you to Him and that that is a beautiful and powerful thing. Which brings us back to the cross of Christ as He begins to speak. Third thing we would look at here is the compassionate care of Jesus from the cross in providing a family for His mother. Verse 26, When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, first time we've realized John is also there, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. I think you'll agree this is a very tender scene. A sweet, sorrowful expression of the caring heart of Jesus for His mother. I mean, no doubt, from the cross, He can see the depths of her grief. And so in spite of His own agony, He's the one who is dying there. His mind is on her. I take real comfort from that. Because I think it reveals something about the heart of Jesus. What's that old gospel song? When He was on the cross, I was on His mind. Oh dear, when there's truth to that. This death, this agony, does not distract Jesus from His goal of bringing His Father glory and us good. And here in His hour of death, that heart of His committed to bringing good to those who trust Him, is set upon her. So He speaks. Now think about that just for a second. He speaks. Think of the effort involved. I mentioned in a previous sermon how crucifixion made it almost impossible to breathe. In fact, when you were in the rest position, it was impossible to breathe. The weight of the body uh, pulling down on the nails would separate the shoulders in such a way and paralyze the breathing muscles in the torso that you simply could not draw in a breath. And so to be able to breathe at all, it was necessary for the crucified to, to hoist himself up, pulling down on the nails in his wrist, pushing against the nail through his feet to get up high enough to breathe. That means every time Jesus speaks from the cross, it requires a tremendous intentional and painful effort to do so. Which is probably why we only know of seven things He said from the cross. That being a bunch anyway. And this is one of them. We'll look at two more next week. But here is his concern for his mother. 
And again, yeah, Jesus is God. But Jesus, never forget, is also human. He's a man. And His role as the firstborn son is to provide for His mother after the death of Joseph. And He's not going to neglect that. Verse 26, When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into His own home. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Right, of course, that's John, the author of this Gospel. We've covered this before. He's the only one of the twelve, as far as we know, who's made it this far. Peter is off weeping in a corner somewhere. The others have scattered like sheep. So he's the only one who personally witnesses the crucifixion. And now he's the one to whom Jesus entrusts the care of his mother. But why him? Why not one of Jesus' own brothers? According to Mark 6 and other places, there were at least four of them. You know, children Mary and Joseph had after the birth of Jesus to Mary as a virgin. So, why not one of them? Well, up to this point, they're not believers, right? Someone just said it. In fact, John 7 says they were quite hostile to Jesus and His messianic claims. So, believing Mary needs another family to care for her. This is what Jesus provides. The language here is actually the language of adoption. In an adoption of the day, uh, there was a point at which the prospective parent would say, Behold, I am your father, or in this case, mother. And the one being adopted, if old enough, would say, Behold, I am your son or your daughter. And so Jesus is now saying to them, Behold, you are now a family. There is a new relationship being forged between you because of your relationship with me. John, there's your mother. Take care of her. Woman, notice he doesn't call her by her name. He doesn't even say mom. It's like he's kind of distancing that physical relationship. Woman, still a term of endearment. This is your son. Go with him. And so on a personal level, For the two of them anyway, this was a very significant moment. And we're told that from then on, Mary went and lived with John and his family, and John took care of her. Another early Christian tradition even says that this became a permanent arrangement, even after Jesus' brothers were converted, that that Mary continued to live with John and his family, first in Jerusalem and then uh, finally in the city of Ephesus itself. And, And it is in Ephesus, at least according to some traditions, that Mary will then finally die and be buried, still under John's care. But there's something else we need to notice here. Notice what Jesus has done. Jesus has just set a new standard for what it means to be family in the context of the church. Notice that. The thing that now matters most is not the blood relationship that ties Mary to her unbelieving sons. No, no. A deeper tie exists in her new relationship with John as a fellow believer in Christ. Now take note of that, because this this is pretty huge. This is pretty important. And no, it's not saying that physical families don't matter. Right? Open the rest of the New Testament and you'll see they do matter. We're commanded to care for our families. We're commanded uh, to all those things are, are valid and important. But what this is saying 
is that the coming of Christ has brought a new reality into our lives, forging an even deeper and more lasting bond than any kind of blood connection could ever provide. And that comes to us through our spiritual kinship to Jesus by faith. Right? Jesus actually indicated that back in Matthew 12. Do you remember that scene? There were a crowd pressing in around Jesus and His family came. They were trying to actually take possession of Him. They, they thought He was crazy at that point, right? They're not believers. I don't think even Mary uh, seems to have fully been cognizant of, of, of what all this means. Uh, we could debate that. But, but, but the family is there and they want to see Him and they think that their physical relationship will give them privilege to be able to get in. And Do you remember what Jesus says? Matthew 12.48, he replied to the man who told him, hey, they're out there waiting on you. He says, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so the thing that binds Mary to John and John to Mary most deeply is their common belonging to Christ. That bond in Christ supersedes and goes deeper than any other human bond, even that of family. And dear one, in the same way, the bond that binds me to you and you to me is our common belonging to Christ by faith. More than blood, more than sharing a last name, if I belong to Christ and you belong to Christ, oh dear friend, we belong together. Because everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to everyone who belongs to Jesus. We are family. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, listen, even if your family rejects you for your faith, you belong. You are family here. And isn't it interesting how that language erupts in the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus and Christians regularly begin calling one another brother, sister. And understand, that's not just language. That is a new reality. That is what we are called to live out in our lives together in Christ. And so standing at the foot of the cross, we see both a division between believer and unbeliever and a uniting together of believers. A division from the callous and unbelieving for whom Christ means nothing, for whom the cross means nothing, and a union between those whose lives are drawn to Christ specifically because of the cross and therefore whose lives are drawn to one another because He now means everything. So I invite you this morning to draw near to Christ by faith. Draw near believing that this death was to pay the penalty for the sins of all who embrace Him and not only to pave the way for the forgiveness of sins, or actually to accomplish that fully, but also to pave the way for bringing us together as one who stand in Him, who love Him, who support one another because of Him, who walk together in Him to the end of our days, oh yeah, and into eternity. Let's pray. Father, 
these scenes that you design as you orchestrate all history for your glory are meant to teach us. We're meant to see these distinctions and we're meant to see this union. We're meant to see what you love and value and what therefore we must love and value. And above all, we are meant to see your Son dying in our place, risen on the third day, reigning as King even from the cross and uniting us together as one through faith in your blood. Father, would you move the hearts of every person here to see their need for Jesus and their need for fellowship. Their need to belong. Lord, every, every human heart feels that. Lord, we all want belonging and we, so we chase it in all the places it can't be found in clubs and groups and, and even bound together with others through specific sins. That's what humans do because humans know they should belong and yet there's only one to whom we may belong eternally and gloriously and beautifully and it is that one who made our belonging possible through yielding himself to be abandoned, to be crucified under the weight of sin and who rose those on the third day to draw all men, all women, all children who believe to Himself. Lord, help us to live in the light of that. For it is in Christ's name we pray.